Greetings, everyone. This is KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And you're listening to Art Hour. I'm your host, Mike Malson. I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, um, well, we both know this, our guest artist today, but uh, you're connected to him because I know you purchased a piece of art from him as well. So who do we have today? Uh, it's Larry Ellingson, Renaissance man. I don't know if he's a <laughs> dilettante or a polymath. We were discussing that beforehand. I think he's more of a polymath than I am. That's for dang sure. I'm more on the dilettante side. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, Larry, uh, the reason we have you here, I mean, we kind of uh, opened up our schedule uh, because you've just got a lot of really cool stuff going on. Um, so uh, tell, us, tell us what you got going on coming up. All right. Um, I do both uh, music and visual art, and I make uh, what I call uh, additive sculpture. You know, basically I find junk and put it together and call it art. <coughs> And sometimes I paint it, and sometimes I use photography and use different kinds of things. So uh, occasionally I gather all this stuff together and put it in a show. And this is happening on Saturday. Um, for the very first time, uh, our house, we call it the Wee House, W-E, for Wigan Ellingson, uh, mm. my wife and I. That's better than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we thought about it. Ew. <laughs> Ew, we don't like that. Yeah. So... Uh, we're opening our house to the uh, general public the first time on uh, Saturday. And this is an event that is called the, uh, let's see, I think this is through the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture. So the mu this is the third annual MAC, Museum of Arts and Culture, that's what that acronym stands for, Holiday Artist Studio Tour. So we're one of the studios on that tour, and uh, there's going to be, um, we're just one of, of several studios on it. Um, uh, Kathleen Cavender is also going to be showing work at her place and um, Tim Ely uh, who when I was on the show a, a little over a year ago with uh, with Jennifer uh, we talked about an album project that Tim and I collaborated on Tim is a visual artist and he does incredibly cool drawings and he also makes one-of-a-kind manuscript books and so he's going to be coming up and showing also in my little tiny gallery mm -hmm. up at the top of the stairs in our house. So uh, Tim is going to be there. And then I, Ira Gardner, who is a, a, teaches at Spokane Falls Community College and is just an excellent photographer who has uh, explored his ex exploration in fine arts, uh, black and white photography, is going to be showing at his studio at the Richmond Gallery. And uh, Suzanne Ostersmith is going to be showing at uh, Wendy's with Z Wendy Zupan at her gallery uh, up just off 29th uh, near Lincoln Heights. So uh, Suzanne is a, uh, actually teaches dance um, at, and is the assistant professor in theater uh, and dance at uh, Gonzaga. But she also does visual work and uh, it's really quite stunning. And then Wendy does kind of whimsical uh, dolls and other neat, neat work. All of that's happening on Saturday, and uh, originally Hazen Odell was scheduled, but he apparently does documentaries with National Geographic and stuff and got called away on a project, so Dean Davis has stepped mm. in to take his place, and so many, many of your listeners are probably familiar with his work. He's a commercial photographer in town, but he does just stunning fine art photography as well. 
all kinds of things like that. So um, this should be a pretty good show. Uh, you, you can buy your tickets through uh, the Northwest Mac, um, and it's $10, I think, for uh, just to go around and see all the studios. The artists get to keep all the money. The Mac makes $10 for, for each one that comes, and I think it's a pretty good cost, so I don't mind mentioning that. And then there's going to be reception after it afterwards at the Barrister Winery at, at 3 o'clock when the whole thing is over. So we're going from 9 to 3 on Saturday, and then uh, from 3 to 5 there will be a reception at the Barrister. And, and that costs an extra $10 to go to that. So, But that gives you a chance to actually meet us incredible <laughs> artists. You know, so That's it's got to be worth a lot. So how, how many different people did you list there? That was like maybe five, six different locations? Maybe six or seven. Yeah, six or seven. I think a couple of them are, are gathering uh, together. I hadn't really figured that out. That's a good question. It, yeah, it doesn't Mike, ha- were you taking notes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like, I mean, in order, and, and it, they're kind of far flung, because are you on the north side, Larry? Uh, no, we're on, we're on the south side. Okay. So it's mostly Southfield downtown, mm-hmm. uh, 29th, and uh, Kathleen lives on the South Hill. So Yeah, and, and how, did, um, how did the Mac select the artist? Did you apply for that? Was it a call for artists for this tour? or? Well, I should have asked that, but I, I kind of thought it was a pushy question since <laughs> I was in. You know, I was just, <laughs> just glad to be in. So yeah. I, I, I was afraid that if I questioned it, they'd say, probably, well, why are you asking? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are we expecting to see at your place then? Well, I'm going to have um, <clears throat> some three-dimensional uh, work. I've got about 12 to 15 pieces that I'll be showing, and then Tim is going to have some one-of-a-kind drawings that he's done, uh, some of them on uh, a board with a little frame around the back of it. Uh, and uh, these are these are really, you know, they're going to be just stunning pieces. So. Now, these 12 to 15 pieces, are these pieces that you've shown before, or are these new? Uh, about half of them I have shown before, but many of them are, are brand new. Okay. So and and so you you describe, I mean, you take stuff you find mm-hmm. and you put them into a, a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, I mean, as I describe it, it sounds junky, but it's not. It looks yeah. very beautiful. <laughs> but my question is, I mean, you you came up, your, your profession was in the sound engineering recording right. field, correct? Well, Actually, that was kind of a sideline of what I did because what I really, uh, what I actually made my living doing was running a company called Inland Audiovisual. Right. And um, it went away in 2005 and became a, a couple of smaller businesses. And I retired in, in 2011. And uh, so what I what I did was in, involved in all kinds of things from production to rentals to equipment things. We Basically, it was... Uh, projectors and sound systems and everything kind of related to that. So, uh, but I loved doing, um, you know, composing music and I was a very active, uh, commercial composer starting out doing work for, um, a company that became Pinnacle Productions. Originally it was called Spokane Community Video, then SCV Productions, and then the Coles Publishing Company bought them. They stayed in Spokane for about five years and then moved to Seattle. And I did their very first um, commercial project where they used uh, original music, and it was a a disco version of "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the uh, the uh, other the last project was uh, a, a piece I created original music for uh, a score for a corporate video about a waste of energy plant in Idaho. Wow. 
So, so it's very, it's all very noble, <laughs> um, high-minded kind of stuff that I've been involved with. So. You have like a couple uh, um, mediums of art. You know, you have your music creation, and then you have your 3D art. But when, uh, when did you um, get into the music aspect of it? Was that something you had taken in school, grown up with, um, and then to get into actual composition? Did you go to school for that? That's an excellent question, Mike. Uh, <laughs> The, when I was a kid, I played piano, um, and I took piano lessons, but I got frustrated because it was so hard. It gave me a headache to try to learn you know, independent left and right hands. So I quit taking piano lessons but learned to play by ear. And um, I remember the first song I actually worked out from on the radio was uh, the, the theme to Exodus, the, oh. the movie. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, w- which was kind of simple but also uh, kind of advanced for harmony for a, you know, a sixth grader. But um, I played in bands, and as many of you have played in bands, as you know, the lead guitar player always quits when you've just about got enough songs to play your first gig. <laughs> and that happened about the third time to me, and I thought, damn it, I'm going to do this myself. So I, about that time, that was in 1974, I bought my first synthesizer, and I bought a synth- an ARP Odyssey synthesizer and a... Um, four-channel quarter-inch tape deck from a company called Docorder. And uh, we, I walked out of the, as I walked out the door, the guy says, you know, you can now create any sound imaginable, and even sounds that are not imaginable. You can, you can create anything now, because you've got a four-track tape deck and a synthesizer. And then he disappeared yeah. in a puff of smoke. <laughs> 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 and so um, I, I played around with that, but I actually, within about a year, I realized that there was nobody really, there was people that were dabbling in it and playing in bands, but they weren't actually working with the commercial area. And my company was in touch with a lot of ad, ad agencies who would rent equipment from us for various things. And I and I found out that they were, a lot of them were looking for music. So I started creating, I think my actual very first project was uh, to do the uh, the music for the news, the intro logo for KSPS television. Hmm. Ah. So. Wow. And back when you were um, doing synth, because I remember growing up um, and I was a big fan of like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and yes. And some of the keyboardists that used synthesizers back then was there any particular musician or band that you listened to that kind of really got you into (coughs) synth music? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was who I was into. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, yeah, I was just, when I heard Close to the Edge the first time, I just about died and went to heaven. And uh, I, uh, and it, what's interesting is that Tim Ely and I, that's one of our very strongest connections. We met about three years ago and have just become, I guess, BFFs. We're best mm-hmm. friends forever. Um, and a lot of that was our um, mutual admiration for Yes mm-hmm. and all aspects of it. So he's a guitar player and I'm a keyboardist. Uh, so I was very influenced by that by that sound, but um, I'm not virtuosic. I can just barely play, and that's why I was really drawn to the idea of using um, the technology MIDI as the musical instrument digital interface. In case you ever wondered what that <laughs> stood for, and I used that. Um, uh, I didn't use it early on because it wasn't invented until 1981. Mm-hmm. But I started in '76, and I would use double speed recording techniques where I'd play back the I'd play I'd play the tape very slowly and then play the part in and then speed it up and it sounded like it was just zinging along 
And uh, I did techniques like that. And then when, when MIDI finally came along, then I started using um, things called sequencers and computers later on to, to be able to do that. So I've kind of followed that from the very beginning of its practicality. Synthesizers have been around a long time, but it was only in the, in the early 70s that they became affordable. Before that, it was just very expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and it wasn't cheap then. I think I paid yeah. $700 for a, a used uh, Odyssey uh, at that time. And $700 was actually worth more uh, in 1974 than it is now. So <laughs> that's what yeah, I've heard. Actually, <laughs> do you uh, still have that keyboard? No, I don't. Oh, no, I, I don't have any of my original stuff at all. So um, we had had a conversation earlier this summer, and um, you were talking about, um, and you brought up MIDI, which has like changed the whole industry as far as interfacing, you know, digital with, uh, you know, the whole sound spectrum i guess mm -hmm. but you you mentioned something about going actually down to california and got involved with the whole kind of the crew that actually decided hey we need to get together and standardize this thing around well maybe. i wasn't really involved with the crew but i was just kind of <laughs> uh i was i was sort of a forrest gump kind of situation actually <laughs> where i just happened to be wandering through at the time and there i, I really wanted to get a, a sequencer and uh there is a company called Sequential Circuits that, uh, that made sequencers. And uh, this later became Dave Smith Instruments and now is one of the most successful analog synthesizer companies in the world. But they introduced the, f the, the world's first polyphonic synthesizer, uh, meaning that instead of just playing one note, which, you know, like most synthesizers up to that point, uh, only played one tone at a time, um, and if you wanted to play more notes, you could get more synthesizers together. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't really any way to even connect them together to, to get them to work, so to actually play them like with a single keyboard. So um, while I was in California, I, was, I, I, went, I went to, I found Dave Smith Instruments, or well, it was sequential circuits then, and uh, I knocked on the door at this apartment, and this lady answered, and she says, no, he moved out of here about a year ago. So I went down to, guess it was in Palo Alto, down in Silicon Valley, and in a garage, honest to God. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked in, and there was nobody there. And I looked around, and there was benches all along the wall, like where people would normally be working. And this, this pleasant guy comes out, can I help you? And I said, sure. I came down to see if I could buy one of those sequencers from you. And he goes, well, we're not in production on them right now, and I'm not sure we're actually going to do it because I'm working on this other really interesting project. <laughs> and it was a five-note polyphonic synthesizer. It was mm. called the Prophet Five, and it be, it was. A, and for those those of you kids out there, <laughs> well, that's the sound of uh, uh, Van Halen's Jump, mm. and a lot of those other early synth sounds. Very very powerful. I couldn't afford one. They were like four thousand dollars mm. then, mm. and I, I I never bought one. And then I went up to Oberheim and and visited Tom Oberheim's, and he came out and met me and sh you know shook my hand because. They were hoping I'd buy stuff, and so was I, but it was all too expensive. So, But it was kind of fun to be there at that time. Um, this is kind of an interesting segue, but I, uh, in 1988, I kind of threw together using my first MIDI, my first really capable MIDI sequencer, and created a, uh, a piece of music that uses just synthesizers, and uh, some of them are uh, using kind of sample-based um, sounds, but they weren't samplers. That was really that 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 was to come later. And I created a little piece uh, because 
you know, Inland Audiovisual Company was downstairs from KVBX, which was our upstairs mm. neighbor. And uh, one day Vern Wyndham asked me, uh, he said, do you have anything that y you've done that's like Christmas music? And I said, no. And he says, well, I, could you do something like next month around Christmas? And so I went home and just worked like crazy, mm. and I knew I wouldn't get anything for it, but I created this piece. And I chose the 12 Days of Christmas. And... Uh, and with the idea of, the, there's a thing in MIDI that's called a program change, and you can embed it in the sequence and then tell the synthesizer to change its voice just before it has to play. Hmm. And so this thing is just full of those embedded program changes. And uh, I, uh, that's the CD that I brought in here, and I think it's the one that's queued up. So okay. um, this one is, uh, remember, the, the piano sample that opens this, you'll hear it as this kind of buzzy, phasey kind of sound. You may not notice mm -hmm. that, but I do. And it's a real cringeworthy piano sound. And, but all the rest of it is done just with a bunch of, I think I was using four different synthesizers that all had multiple sounds in them and could play several notes at one time. So oh, cool. hit it, Eric. And will do. <laughs>
Larry, that was epic. <laughs> that was epic. <laughs> what year was that again? 1988. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so we need to um, uh, render unto... Caesar's, what is Caesar's? But I, I got a few questions to ask you after we take our break. And now a word from our sponsor. Exactly. There you go. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. And now a little show promotion for my friend Jukebox Jenny. Which, by the way, yes. won an award. Uh, what was the award? Something from the oh, the Blue Society or something like that, but got a word for her show. Uh, um, it's Jukebox Jenny. Right on. Yeah. Well, congratulations, yeah. Jukebox Jenny. We got the blues on. Sure ain't got to the blues. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... And... And... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. This is your Live and Local calendar for Thursday, December 5th to Sunday, December 8th. The Live and Local calendar receives support from the Treefort Music Fest located in downtown Boise, Idaho. First round of artists has been announced, including Chromatics, Japanese Breakfast, Omar Apollo, Madhu Mokhtar, and many more. March 25th through the 29th, tickets and more information available at treefortmusicfest.com. Thursday at the Lucky You Lounge, Harriet Brown and Eliza Catastrophe, at Zola, Blake Braley Band, and at the Knitting Factory, Kai Waki, Sam Lamar, Bowflex, and Vitamin V. Friday at the Big Dipper, Elf and Gun Riots, Still We Rise, Civilians, and Sovereign Citizen and the Nonprofits. At the Lucky You Lounge, Indian Goat and Django with New Track City and Fat Lady. At the Pin, Ghost Heart, Day in Eternity and Dysfunctional Chaos and at the Knitting Factory, The Dead South. Friday and Saturday at Zola's Loose Gazoons at Bolo's Pastiche and at the Bing Spokane Jazz Orchestra does a Glenn Miller Christmas. Saturday at the Big Dipper, the Aqua Dolls, the Pink Socks and SOT. At the Pin, Glass Parks, 509 Takeover. Sunday at Zola, it's Glass Honey and at the South Hill Grill, Just Plain Darren. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month keeps KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. You can also support KYRS by drinking coffee. Every first Monday of the month, KYRS gets 10% of the proceeds at Cafe Afogado. Cafe Afogado is located at 19 West Main in Spokane. Information at 868 0011. That's where we always have coffee before the show, right down there in Serenat Commons, yep. right? Yep. It's Great good service. Place. Good coffee. Awesome place, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, yeah. I might add. All yes. right. Yes. Yeah, so we're back, and um, dur- as we were playing that tune, I asked you how many hours that took to compose, and you said 150 to 200 hours. Yes. Uh, and you said it was because you were learning as you went along. Yes. So how were you different after you did that? Well, I mean, how did that, how was that a fulcrum in your music creation? Well, this is a little bit like a, 
you know, kind of a masterpiece uh, in, in the literal sense, you know, where the idea was that when you study under, you know, you're an apprentice studying under a master that you, you learn a variety of skills and then to basically show your master that you have, that you've accomplished that, then you create your masterpiece. And that's what this was because I, I kind of dabbled around using this uh, technology a little bit and we'll come back to that because I know you had a question about it, but um, this was to to really just take it to the max, and I'd never heard anybody do anything quite like this. And what's interesting about it, uh, if you're into technology or recording at all, this is not a multi-track recording. This is a two-track. I, I basically hit the play button and played it into my tape recorder, and it was a two-track stereo recording, and that's it. So you weren't layering it on the recording. No. It, it existed as a piece in the synthesizer or in the sequence. The See, this is the part I don't understand. Yeah. I don't okay. understand electronic music at all. So when you say you just hit play, then where was all this stuff stored? How was it not multi-track at that point? Well, I'm going to use an analogy to, to explain MIDI. Um, it's Again, that stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It was originally created so that I could... I had I had two synthesizers and I want to be able to to layer them. I want to be able to when I play this piano sound, I also want to have I have another synthesizer that can make a string sound. So I want to play them together. And up until MIDI was developed, there was really no way. Some of the manufacturers had proprietary things that they did, but there was an unprecedented kind of treaty in the music business that is still probably the most spectacular uh, agreement that's ever happened in technology. And that's that uh, the comp very popular companies, Roland, Yamaha, and then Sequential Circuits, basically agreed to come up with a standard that they would all share. And the standard would, you know, as it was updated and everything, everybody had to agree on how it was going to be, how it would work. Because, um, and it's a little bit like uh, the Android phone technology mm -hmm. in that sense, but there are some things that don't work with other things with Android. And I don't, I don't have an Android myself, but I know that there can be some frustrations on that. There are no frustrations in this unless somebody just ignored the spec. They can't put the name MIDI on a device unless they actually follow the spec. Anyway, so that's kind of how it started. Um, but they found that if they could, they could, let's see. So my analogy is liken it to a, a, a font on your computer. When you, when you type on the computer, what you're doing is you're creating what's called an ASCII code. They're just very, very sparse little bits of data that says this is an A, that's a D, this is a capital H, that's a pound sign, and those kinds of things. And the computer knows what that means. It's, just a, it's like an 8-bit um, character, but the, but the computer knows what, it, what that actually translates into. Then so, you it's have like the so it's like the directions for what the screen will show you, yes. but it's not actually the thing. But, yeah, it's not actually the thing. Because if you actually had to draw out the thing, you'd have all these pixels involved in this hand motion and everything. So what it does is that ASCII code calls up the font and says, and then if you've, if you've loaded up, you know, uh, Helvetica Bold, then that's what you see on the screen. When I play MIDI, into the, it, 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 it listens to note on, note off, and what the pitch is supposed to be and how hard I hit it. And there's some other information that can be transmitted too. So I can also then change it to, say, commercial script light. And this, the, the, the uh, screen shows the commercial script. I can change it from a piano to a clarinet and have that play. 
So, but the thing is that we can then create multiple channels of using a thing called a sequencer. And the, actually, the first sequencer just had one channel, and it was just pure magic to me. The idea you could play this in and then listen to the synthesizer play it back. While it was playing, you could adjust the filter and the volume, the envelope, and make all of those changes to the sound while it was playing something that I just played, but I'm not playing it now, mm -hmm. and it's not coming from tape. So that was, that was a really cool thing. So you're so, editing the sound after you've created the sound. That's right. Okay. And so well, what you do is you just play into it, and I'm a terrible player. There's a thing called quantization, quantization. To be able to quantize the sound, it will actually correct any rhythmic variations. And as it's gotten more sophisticated, you can even go back in and, and sort of, it's called humanize. And humanize a full <laughs> sounds like somebody's drunk and trying to play the keyboard. <laughs> so, uh, but those are, all, those are all algorithms that were, that were developed later on. So this is basically a multi-track recording, and the trick is at the end of each one of those sequences, just before the next one starts, so it would be like on mm. the fourth beat of the, fourth or the last measure, I fire out this program change that tells the synthesizer to change its sound. Now, when you say fire out this program change, is that something you've programmed into a computer? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, and so I, you and I put that in there, too, so I know what it's going to change to. So and you, there and are discrete units in there that you're just playing in sequence. That's right. And then you said the first sequencer was one channel? Yeah. How many channels were you dealing with on that what, recording? Uh, let's see. This was... You said that was 88, so... This was an 8-track. Um, okay. And it was built into a keyboard called an ESQ-1. Hmm. And, uh, and I, I probably should have sent a recording to, to Ensonic, the, the company that made this, the, the keyboard, because it was really pushing it. Mm, okay. <laughs> That's wow. cool. But what a great way to, to learn, you know, and get started on that yeah. whole thing. So as you listen to that, and I, and I like I was talking to you before, uh, talking with another musician here in town that does a... A lot of um, is really into synthesized sounds and everything. There's like two other mediums that's similar to as far as visual artists go, and that is painting, where you're layering all of these different colors and different, you know, in, in this case, you're layering sounds and different ways to uh, textures of the sound and all that. Mm -hmm. But you also have collage, because I'm looking at just listening to that last recording. You know, you're taking sampled things and you're collaging it on and then mm -hmm. layering it on. And that kind of relates to your 3D work, maybe. Yes, it think? does. In fact, this, is, this piece is pretty good because it's kind of an, uh, a glimpse into how I think about mm -hmm. things. And uh, it's like, well, let's see, if we, just, if we came out of that little music box thing and had a nice little lullaby kind of sound after that, that would be just really nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Let's not do that. Uh, so, uh, so instead, let's have bagpipes and a drum, you know. And uh, the dynamics aren't too, as, as shocking as I thought they would be, you know, on the piece. But I'm constantly trying to kind of yank the chain on that to mm -hmm. make it. And I often, th when, I'm, when I'm making a piece of art in the studio, um, I'll think, you know, that, those really go together nice. And, uh, and I throw one away and find something that they don't go together very nice. Because I like that contrast and that kind of surprise. That, and I think that's what is attractive about the piece is that uh, I think it really helps you look at familiar things in different ways. Mm -hmm. When and how did you start doing your visual art? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, when I was in, um, in junior high school, and I know you're both educators, so you're going to love this story. <laughs> but uh, 
uh, I went to Havermail Junior High when that was actually a junior high school, before they had middle schools even. And um, we didn't have very many male art teachers. They just didn't exist. And we had one at, at Havermail, and I was really excited. All the boys were just crazy. You know, they, boy, we got, you know, Mr. McGinnis is so cool, you know. So we did this project, and it was sort of our thesis project. We worked on it for a couple of months, just a little bit at a time. And then we were basically graded for, the, for the, that semester on that project, and it was a mask. And when I finished mine, Mr. McGinnis discreetly came around to each one of us and talked to us about our piece. And he told me that, you know, you probably shouldn't try to pursue, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, art. Uh, because this, this, I can see you worked really hard on this, but it's not very good, you know. That is not so, what I expected you to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so from then on, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't sign up for any art classes, and I walked by the art room and kind of look over there and go, gee, I wonder what, the, oh, that looks really cool. I, no, I can't do that. I'm, I, I guess I'm, but I play the clarinet, and I play the saxophone, so I'm going to do that. And uh, it, it didn't really, didn't devastate me, but it, it, it redirected me. And uh, so working on you doing different production work for Inland Audiovisual, I, I learned how to uh, be an art director because we needed one and I couldn't afford to hire one, mm -hmm. so I, I was one. And, um, and I learned a lot about how things worked and I, and I looked at, uh, we did slideshows, um, and I looked at uh, big, big productions that used multiple projectors, and we did those too. And, um, uh, and, I, and I kind of I started to develop my aesthetic. Uh, during uh, Expo in 1974, uh, when I was just really starting, uh, be before I got into management, uh, I had a silkscreen printing shop, and I created a lot of our own products in that shop. Uh, I took a class out at, took a one-quarter class at Spokane Falls, and then opened a commercial shop in silkscreen printing after that. Lasted a couple of years, paid everybody off, closed the door, managed to feed my family for, for a year and a half or two off that, and then went back into being the audiovisual guy but uh, so finally the reason this is a long story is because it took a while to get to the point where I was confident to be able to start making some art and it was closer to the time that I actually retired and there was uh, I, I did I my wife and I uh, Jan and I travel around the world and we s had seen a lot of really cool galleries, and we just that's the first thing we do. We go to the Contemporary Art Museum, not necessarily the, uh, the histor historical museums. And I'd, we'd see stuff, and I'd think, there's this kind of thing I'm looking for, and I just don't find it. Hmm. You know? Maybe I could make that thing I can't see or that I'm not seeing. How and, would you describe what it was you were yeah. seeing in your mind? Um, well... But I, when I finally did see, I, I did finally see a piece, and there was an artist named Joseph Cornell that is a kind of a famous assemblage artist uh, from about 100 years ago, maybe a little over that now, and about 100 years from then. And uh, basically it was just the idea of putting, putting things together in unusual ways. And I, I, do, I wasn't seeing enough of that. So I decided to do some myself. When I started doing it, then I found it everywhere, of course, because mm -hmm. that's kind of the way <laughs> that uh, I think our consciousness works. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say things, though, uh, what, what sort of things did you start working with? Well, originally, one of my influences locally was that uh, there used to be a little thing called the, uh, what was it, the Hot Flash of Spokane, 
was a little shop in the basement or in the ground floor, off, just off the lobby of the Ridpath Hotel mm. back then. And now my dear friend, Dan McCann, um, uh, we've gotten to know each other really well, but he had some pieces there and they were things that were done with, you know, little pieces of dice and dominoes and things like that. And uh, he was very influenced by Joseph Cornell before I ever knew who Joseph Cornell was. And, and I really liked that. And he did boxes. And so I started doing boxes. And, um, but, but the kind of things I was drawn to were, uh, well, I used, I've used uh, cue balls and pieces of broken uh, glassware. Uh, piece, I, I love going out to Pacific Metal and going through the copper, aluminum, brass bins and finding junk in there that I would bring home and then make art from. Um, and uh, sometimes I uh, would, you know, paint some of the things I was working with, and other times I'd use, you know, layers of old calendars and things like that. And how has your work changed over time since then? Well, when I first started doing it, um, it, was, it was very, very chaotic. In fact, my friend Steve Schneider says that... Uh, uh, yeah, I liked your old stuff before you sold out to the man. <laughs> <laughs> so now that I'm getting filthy rich doing this, you know, like, like all artists in Spokane yeah. are. You know. uh, and uh, I think that I, I think that some of the work has gotten simpler. Um, it gives it's a little easier to focus on it. Before, I think it'd take you know four or five minutes to really absorb a piece and, and look at all the the various aspects of it and and fully uh, under you know observe it so i this is somewhat of a manifestation of how your mind works because i think what you just described sort of describes your the the music that you create Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of novelty a lot of taking things that we ordinary things but making it different or unique and novel through some sort of manipulation juxtaposing Yeah. yeah yeah so um in your um show that you did last year with Mr. Ely mm-hmm. and you had the 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 music and you had your art and it was um, his art and your music that went with yes. that. Talk a little bit about that in terms of how that's playing in your how your art and music's evolving at this point in your life. Well, that was a real breakthrough and 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 the singular most satisfying collaboration and i haven't done many collaborations but this was just really fun and the uh, the concept was uh that tim created a what was called a visual what we called a visual score and um something that was very popular back in the 50s and 60s where composers and artists would get together and and uh, say hey i'll let me make some music for your art. No, I'll I'll make I'll make some art for your music. And and uh, there were a lot of different collaborative things that happened. And Tim and I had this road trip where we got to talking about that, and we decided to come up with something, and it, and it worked out really well. So what what that has done is that it really opened uh, ideas in my mind about how to create music that. Uh, was more visual in a sense and it's also created i I think that perhaps there's even a more of a musicality to my fit to my three-dimensional art that i create um that that it has a certain lyrical quality which is something that was really absent you know in the Mm -hmm. past and some people like it and some people don't but it's uh that's kind of the way that it's evolved but that was a, a real change what i've been really interested in doing my side project that um is uh kind of has been consuming my interest recently is doing a live performance thing 
And in Spokane last, um, I think it was in August or early September, um, that that uh, tech, technological taxidermy. Oh, yeah. Are you guys familiar with that? Yeah, with uh, Tobias and Tobias yeah, Hendrickson. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Tobias and Chelsea Hendrickson yeah. uh, put on a show called Tapestry, uh, and it was uh, at the Lucky U. And uh, there were a number of performers that, and some people from Portland and, and even a guy from either L.A. or San Francisco came up for that. And it was really, really cool. And we had a good time. And I, I performed at, at that and uh, using really a, not so much a modular synthesizer, but a thing based around an iPad is what I was using at the time. And it wasn't all iPad. It was some analog synthesizers and some other technology. Um, and uh, one thing that I that I like doing is playing with what's called a wind controller, and it's a MIDI instrument. If I didn't have it plugged in and blew into it, you wouldn't hear anything except rushing air. But when I play it and it's plugged into something, I can play, you know, like I can play piano with it. But it looks kind of like a clarinet, and I can bend notes with oh. my lip and mm-hmm. do all that kind of thing. And I've gotten fairly good at playing that because I was I'm also a sax player, so I've been more interested in, in getting into there's a there's a funny genre that I learned about on Spotify. It probably only exists on Spotify. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, called uh, dark jazz, and it's interesting because it's it's very experimental electronic textures combined with some kind of acoustic instrument, and sometimes the acoustic ins- instrument is you know got, got the heck processed out, out of it, uh, and it's always. But I just find it fascinating, interesting kind of stuff. So that's something that I that I'm kind of pursuing now and trying to create a music rig that I can perform live with and use some sequencing uh, where I'm doing it live and then playing it back, kind of like looping, except uh, perhaps a little more focused. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, So there is kind of a little bit of a, a community here in Spokane, as you were mentioning, with uh, Tobias's um, organization yes. and different people. So um, through that, that whole process of the people that did that show, um, any types of collaborative or ideas that you took from that or ideas that were shared with musicians that are kind of in that genre? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, about, a, I think it was a couple of months later, there was a show in Seattle called Velocity, and I listened to a couple of podcasts. By the way, for those of you listening at home, if you, don't, if you miss this show, just look for it. on. Uh, <laughs> it's Art Hour, and it's, and it's on, if you have Apple Podcasts or any of the podcasts, you can pick it up on this. That's how I listen to this show, personally, <laughs> and I just wanted to give that format, that medium, a plug. I just love it. I never miss a show because of it. Thank you. So, yeah. uh, um, so to answer your question, was there a little uh, cross-pollinization, yeah. perhaps, from mm-hmm. that? And uh, the answer is yeah, yeah. In fact, I met with a couple of the people that were involved in that show uh, that that performed, and I had never seen their stuff before. And uh, there's always just a lot of uh, we we get together usually once a month um, and have what uh, Tobias and Chelsea call a collab, where we uh, uh, there's usually somebody presenting, but we just bring our our gear mm-hmm. with us and and usually just one piece and 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 learn about how it works, either just working by ourselves or sharing with somebody and i find that you know just really stimulating talking to people about what they're doing and and how that's uh how that comes together so you're a multi-instrumentalist and you are kind of a synthesizer guy and you are you know you spent a a career recording and you're a visual artist now i do have a question have you ever tried the written word have you ever has that ever been part of your art or is that something that you just have never been drawn to well you know, I, I ran across a poem I'd written uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, it, it, it wasn't too bad. But, you know, 
The problem with doing all these things is that you've heard of option paralysis probably, <laughs> you know, and, and I really, it doesn't go along with my, my creative process very well to be, you know, constant. I'm doing enough stuff that's really interesting, you know, and I'm 71 years old. I've got, you know, I, I know I'm going to go through a period of declining energy, but the spoken word is really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, talked to a local poet about doing this and I'm not going to uh, say who that person is because we really haven't, um, the, the idea that I'm working on, which is to actually incorporate the words of that person's poem uh, into, uh, I'm going to record it and then process the heck out of it and have it appear uh, as as part of a musical performance. But all everything is going to be in it, you know, so that if you if you knew the work, you would be able to follow it. Hmm. And um, and I that's the idea that's spinning around in my head now. When I actually do it, it may not be like that. Things tend to evolve. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny about the creative process. When I think about what I want to, uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about a project and what I want to do, and and actually kind of start putting it together in my head. But when I walk in the studio, and I sit down with my tools and my junk, um, something else happens. And sometimes it's kind of related to that, but I find the best stuff is what I just, often it's like, oh, that was, that was stimulating. That was a good process. Now let's do this. <laughs> and it's completely different. Hmm. And yeah. uh, that's, that's, that's what's really fun. And, you know, having been kind of a commercial artist in terms of making music to, for advertising agencies and trying to make other people happy, uh, I only have one person that I care about <laughs> making happy now, and that's me. And, and I think that, uh, you know, there's not much of an audience for the kind of music that we're doing at, at Tapestry. There was, there was a, I don't know, probably a hundred people that came through throughout the evening. Uh, and considering that, you know, 13 of those were performers mm-hmm. <laughs> that were on the stage, that's not huge, you know, but um, uh, it, it reminds me of a joke I heard about the difference between um, rock and roll and jazz. In, in rock and roll, they play four chords, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry got it backwards in jazz they play uh 10,000 uh chords and four people come and in <laughs> rock and roll they play four chords and 10,000 people yeah. come and i said that in electroacoustic experimental music you know we don't play any chords and nobody comes <laughs> so so that's uh, so but not having to worry about audience expectation just to be able to you know make yeah. yourself happy so do you so. post your music on your website uh i don't at this point um but we're we're coming up on one year from the release of uh, on CD of the of the project called Score that that Tim Ely and I worked on, and uh, we're thinking I, what I want to do is go ahead and, and publish it electronically and have uh, I'm looking at trying to get the the graphics uh, on Bandcamp and to be able to access the piece there, but also have it distributed. I had it uh, created at a company that that can do all that electronic publishing for you as well as you know, print the CDs, and the, the package was really cool, and I, mm-hmm. I knew we wouldn't sell a lot of them, but we really didn't sell a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So those, by the way, plug, plug, those <laughs> will also be for sale on Saturday uh, where Ely and Ellingson are going to be gathering on for the show. Yeah, it'd be cool to actually maybe even re redo that show. The one thing about the, the, the Colva, it, first of all, a lot of people came, and the music... Um, kind of got absorbed into the the, the, the the space 
so to speak. And I did hear a couple cuts of your music when you were, when Jennifer was hosting the show, and it's amazing, uh, amazing music. So well, I don't you. think people really had a chance to really truly appreciate how that music collaborates with the actual art that Tim did. Mm -hmm. It'd be cool to see that in a in a venue where you could actually hear the music and. Well, you you've. St uh, <laughs> This is a kind of a universal problem that I've had as a visual artist because I've done pieces that actually had audio in them. But if you come on opening night, you're not going to hear it because these pieces did not have killer sound systems built in. Then they're just little computer speakers, mm -hmm. uh, something that you could have, you know, in your living room. You could hear it just fine if everybody just shut up. But uh, at a, an opening, it's a very noisy, noisy mm -hmm. place. I mean, I've actually, rec you know, I've recorded, uh, or I have a little decibel meter on my iPhone, and at one point that evening, I actually looked at it, and it wasn't terrible, but it was like 103D, 103dB SPL. You know, and, and so, yeah, and it was just people yelling at each other above the sound of the music. <laughs> I was <laughs> trying to get them to hear that they couldn't hear. Right, you know? right. So, <laughs> so if anybody out there has an idea, um, and no, putting headphones on, people will not put headphones on. They just won't uh, do it. You know, uh, they'll kind of look at that and go, eh, eh. There's a, kind of a psychology, I call yeah. it the cave thing is that you don't really want to walk into somebody's dark place yeah. you know and there's something about putting headphones on and not quite knowing what you're going to experience and you just go nah i don't want to do mm. that it'd be so. cool to see that on a large screen and actually have tim's you know the the visual of his drawings you know in a, in yeah. a dark room and as that piece goes up that your music that corresponded to the each of those yeah. slides to actually just sit and then and and then have you and Tim kind of ask answer questions at the end of the yeah. thing. I would think it'd be a really well, we cool might way do to something do that. Like that. We yeah, we might. Um, of course, both of us are moving on now. You know, that's kind of in the rearview mirror now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I'm never never quite sure. Uh, another suggestion has been to put it on YouTube. So oh yeah, mm -hmm. there you yeah. go. So with the last couple of minutes we have left, uh, you've got something coming up on Saturday where mm -hmm. we can tour your studio yes. and see some of your artworks in Tim Ely's Ely? Ely. E-L-E-L-Y. Yeah, mm -hmm. see his, his work, too, mm -hmm. in your upstairs gallery. Mm -hmm. What else do you have coming up? Uh, in January, uh, I'm going to be in a, in a group show at uh, uh, La Resistance uh, out on East Sprague. Um, I responded to a Facebook post that said... Do any of you have artwork that lights up? Well, hell yes. I've got <laughs> light work, artwork that, that lights up. So um, uh, I'm going to have a few pieces in that show. Um, ones that there will also be in the show on Saturday. Uh, so if they don't sell there, maybe maybe I'll, maybe there won't be any stuff from mm -hmm. Resistance because I'll sell it all tomorrow, mm -hmm. day after tomorrow. But um, let's see. Then uh, I'm working on a project right now uh, with a fellow that goes by the name Chatham. That I think you may oh, know, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, he has he inherited a um, an 1890s music box that plays different metal discs, um, and so I've created a composition for that uh, that um, is a uh, uh, that I'm I created in in MIDI, and then what he's going to do, and this is really com complicated, but he's going to actually machine the discs using oh my goodness uh, you know uh, software to be able to convert. The, the the instructions that I've that I that I have created for the computer and then turn those into something that'll basically punch holes in the disk. So that project is, you know, he's working, he's doing the hard work on it. I created a piece for it, and uh, 
I'm thinking of one more project, Eric. So as we were talking earlier, um, you know, with Larry being the sound engineer that he is, and our show is getting close to our one-year anniversary, and we don't really have an official beginning or an official end where people kind of know, I hear this, art hours ready to begin, or I'm hearing this, and art hours ready to close. Yeah. Maybe Larry could uh, come up with a 30-second, one-minute, or whatever, how... What do you think? I'd love it. Yeah. That sounds like big fun. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to do that. Yeah, I would. I would. That would be fun. And I know that this is where the big money is, too. Oh, you know, right. So, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, community radio. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll, cre- I'll create some community we'll music. We'll give you then. 10% of our salary. Right. Okay. Right. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Make it Fantastic. 20. <laughs> no, that would, that would be big fun. That, re- that really would be good. Well, Larry, it's always fun talking to you. Uh, I love looking at your art. Uh, uh, your music is always thought-provoking. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, and I know that that you kind of make it to be jarring, but I I like it that it's always getting me to think of of different things. So um, I just appreciate the the art that you do, and I appreciate you coming in to share it with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's awesome, Larry. Until next week, this is KYRS Medical Expo Can 88.1, 92.3 FM. See ya.